As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. We have a new best race of the 2023 MotoGP season just a week after the previous best race of the MotoGP season. The Thai Grand Prix at Buriram was an absolute epic between Jorge Martin, Paco Banyaya and Brad Binder. It ended with a five-point swing in the Sunday race towards Martin in the championship battle. But at so many moments during this incredible contest, things could have happened that could have swung this championship fight decisively. I'm Matt Beer. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. Val Harinci, Simon Patterson. I think it's fair to say we all enjoyed that quite a lot, didn't we? Yeah, it ruled. It really, it was, it was, it was great. I'm trying not to use the expletives right away in in the episode, but yeah, it's just it's a fantastic race. Um, the Phillip Island was maybe like a more feel good, unusual outcome. You know, first time winner, real this sort of building crescendo of drama. You know, the sudden realization that you had a race on, and then the lap by lap tension of it. And this was just a basically an, an insane dogfight in the in the last six laps. It's very very thoroughly enjoyable and made doubly so by the uh by the championship context of it the fact that you know every move felt like it carries this massive uh championship ramification i I, you know as as you guys will attest in slack i uh i posted basically a gif of my soul leaving my body uh, (laughs) in reaction to the peko banyaya two and one overtaking attempt at the final corner which was probably the most exciting moment of the season so far or at least very high up there it's really rare that you get a race where you've got two championship contenders at a late stage in the season with a really tight title fight who are properly willing to go head to head and knock chunks out of each other like that um i don't think we've had one of those sort of races since maybe like a Davizioso versus Marquez in, in like 2017 or 2018. It's been a while. Um, that's not something that we've had recently. Yeah. But whenever you think back to all of the absolutely epic, incredible MotoGP races over the course of like modern history, they've always been t- two championship contenders going head to head. They've been Rossi versus Lorenzo at, at Jerez, or they've been... Um, Rossi versus Lorenzo Barcelona, or they've been Stoner versus Lorenzo at Laguna Seca. They've been one-on-one 
everything on the table, lots to play for. And and yeah, we had Brad Binder in the mix this weekend as well, but it was essentially two guys fighting for a championship with a you know with a South African in the middle of them. Um it made for just exceptionally good entertainment. Um it was it was I don't know, I, I didn't enjoy it as much as last week. Um but that's because there was so much tension around it as well. And at the end of the day, the tension is something that makes it better. Whatever you think about it, like you get so emotionally invested in races like that. And and it, it, it would be, I think you'd be hard pushed to have put that race in front of just about any sports fan anywhere in the world and not have them come out of it, a big MotoGP fan, because of what was going on and what those guys were doing. So yeah, like just fabulous entertainment. Loved it. And I, I agree that the absolute classic races need the biggest names in the title battle fighting for them. But the three you just cited there, they were much earlier in the season. Like right now, this is when it really, really matters. The points are True. so close. Okay, Jorge Martín, Pekka Banyaya, as characters and personalities in the wider world are not where Jorge Lorenzo, Valentino Rossi were, probably won't ever be. But if they can give us this sort of racing this close to the end of the season with so much at stake... I'm not going to say that doesn't matter because in the, in terms of MotoGP's impact on the wider public consciousness, it does need characters, it does need big rivalries, it does need things that transcend its own world. But in terms of energising its hopefully growing fan base right now, this was just, this was absolutely brilliant. And one of those where you come out of it thinking, kind of don't care which of these guys wins this title, they're going to both deserve it because they're putting on races like this and doing it cleanly as well. If that overtake... The, the attempted overtake uh, of Bagnaya against both of them at the end of the, the penultimate lap. If that's not everywhere on social media for the next 10 days to hype up the last three rounds of the championship, then Dorna's social media team are doing something really, really wrong. Like that clip has to go everywhere because it just encapsulated the whole battle in like five seconds and arguably the whole championship as well. Yeah, and it wasn't just that overtake, obviously. there's There's a lot of... For both riders, there's a lot of really enjoyable stuff where you just you just look at them go and you're you're looking at them ride and you're really enjoying the way they're going about business. I also I was really partial to uh, Peko Banyaya's overtake on. Well, I shouldn't say really partial because there's a part of me that suspects it was illegal, but it <laughs> certainly was very fun to watch Peko Banyaya retaliate against Mark Marquez in the in the early going of the race with the with the turn four move uh, that you know. The kind of corner where you probably don't normally do this, which again, also why it might have been illegal because I don't know, are you supposed to leave room to the guy on the outside? Because emphatically that was a hundred percent not done. Not even not even particularly close. Like Mark Marquez was sent to a to a different track there. But just watching Peko Banyaya pick his way through through the fields and watching Jorge Martin, you know, sort of pace manage up front, keep his cards and then you know, counterattack against Brad Binder, try to try to play it exactly right. Both of those, both of those aspects were really enjoyable, and it it, it felt like, you know, both a chess match and a a boxing heat. It was it was great. It was it was uh, the kind of race where you're happy that there was no massive championship swing because you feel like you deserve some more of that with the stakes as high as they are. Yeah, uh, and. We 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 you know we're talking a lot about the battle at the lead, but there was a lot more than that going on in the race as well. Like Bagnaya had to work really hard 
in the early stages to get to where he was. He put on some good displays early on in the race. Yeah. Um, it, you know, the, the whole the whole race was really good entertainment. And as someone that's normally quite critical of Dorna's TV coverage, um, the coverage was worked really well this, this race as well. I don't feel like we missed anything. We saw the right amount of all the battles at the right time and they cut back and forth between everything that was going on really well. So it, it gave you a sense of a really busy race as well with, you know, like all these little scraps going on all the way through it that we, we all got to see a bit of. Let's get into that bit where Banya was on the back foot and being roughed up a bit. There was a, there was a moment where we speculated in our group chat that um, could, this could turn into a Mark Marquez Pekka Banya collision. And the big part of me, because you know I I am employed to make websites have good traffic, a big part of me was thinking, oh, Marquez joining Ducati just after taking out Pekka Banya and deciding the uh, 2023 title battle. That'd be juicy, wouldn't it? Obviously, that would unleash all terrifying hell among fan bases. So I also didn't want that. But um, yeah, yeah, actually, no, part of me, part of me really did. Um, but yeah, so it, on that first first lap or so, Pekka Banyaya with the shadow of the sprint in which Martin had won, Banyaya got, got away poorly, lost ground, being caught up in other battles, lost quite a few points in the sprint alone. Banyaya is going backwards again after a promising start on lap one of the of the main race and at that point you're doing the points calculations and thinking Martin might get this down to like small single digits suddenly so Val how did what did you make of Banyaya's early laps at that moment I I kind of thought this was only going one way and that way was very similar to the sprint uh honestly I I thought that Banyai was still going to be relatively fine as long as he stayed out of, like, major trouble. As long as he avoided, like, breaking off half of his fairing or riding through the gravel, basically. Or somehow picking up a long lap, although it feels like Becca Banyai never, never just, just never does that. Never makes that kind of overtake. Um, but, yeah, it's... I thought... Yeah, I think it still was very important, but a very, very important different rate. Because I think if, you know, Banyai was... Basically fourth after the start, uh, he overtook Alex Marquez on the on the breaking into into the hairpin uh, at the very start of the opening lap, and at that point he was fourth. It was a bit of daylight to the top three, but a top three that I was very convinced that he he should have relatively little trouble catching. And at that point, genuinely, I thought he he's probably going to win this. He might win this. He should win this because Peko Banyaya was always going to be a stronger proposition today than he was on, on, on Saturday. You know, it's a longer race, so it allows him to make more use of his obviously superb tactical mind and how he manages both how races go and how, how, how far his tires go. And it was a, it was a harder rear tire, which he seems to just be more capable on right now than on the softer stuff, like right in this specific point of the season more even than than at any point before but then uh brad bender you know pulls the pin on a pretty aggressive move at, at turn nine after banyaya is maybe a little bit too tentative out of eight and from there on it it just it becomes a different race for for Peko and it becomes a harder race and it i think that was the difference between him finishing third on the road and i'm not going to definitively say he would have beat jorge martin i don't know uh, jorge martin was clearly not not easy to overtake. And still, Banyai would have had to clear both Aleix Spargo and Luca Marini. Uh, Binder did that very quickly, but I don't know if Banyai, with his approach, I think he's a little less gung-ho. <laughs> so maybe he would have been more 
careful about it. I don't know. Not that those overtakes were particularly no. Binder's main most aggressive overtake was the was the Banyaya move for sure. But it, you know, it could have been a different situation. But I think I think you could have won this race. And instead, because because of how that first lap panned out, he he's ended up surrendering just you know that tiny dollar for points to to Martin. I can't help but feel like he's going to be pretty pleased with himself tonight. Um, I had a really quick word with him coming out of the paddock, and he looks like someone that's really happy with themselves. Um, I think we went into this race expecting Martin to be like blisteringly fast, and he had to change that up. He, you know, to be fair to him, he learned his lesson from last week. He was smarter in the early stages of the race, but it very much felt like, it's the best way to put this, like you were watching someone experiment with trying to be Peko Bagnaya or trying to be Andrea Vizioso. It's like he was learning how to control yeah. a race like that. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not yeah, something yeah, that comes sure. naturally to Jorge Martin. I, and he did a very good job of it. He did a, a good enough job of it because he won the race. Um, but I think given the circumstances of Bagnaya's early laps and the way that he finished the race and and you know with a little bit of luck and whatever but to be so close to to martin at the end um i think he will leave uh tonight you know confident that he's he's basically got the match of him here this weekend um and he knows that you know, looking at the schedule ahead um that's kind of all he has to do now you know he, i think he can maintain that points gap uh, take a few points back here and there, but you know, I I, I think Mar uh, Martin said afterwards that that he'd been so nervous all weekend that he hadn't really enjoyed Saturday in the sprint race win, and that he hadn't really slept on Saturday night. But I think Paco was probably feeling a bit the same way on Saturday night, and I imagine he'll go to bed and sleep like a baby tonight because you know, everything everything worked out another weekend for him. You know, it's and and. That sounds like lucky, but it's not lucky. It, it is that like luck is something you make, and that is you know the, we're seeing the, the results of Bagnaya's work paying off with with you know the coincidental thing that he always seems to get lucky. So it feels like it's becoming a bit of a like a Saturday Sunday championship right now, and that Martin's best opportunity to to do some damage to Banyaya's points lead is, is the sprint because he has currently has Peko Banyaya's measure in qualifying and then Banyaya's current riding is just not of the kind, which it is surprising because early in the season Banyaya was so good in the sprints, but right now it feels like he's tentative enough and not as comfortable on the softer rubber, which means that in, those, in that early going in the sprint, he's not... He's just not as strong as Martin, and by the time maybe the pendulum swings the other way, the the laps are over. the The lap count is is done. But I I can see why Martin didn't didn't enjoy particularly Saturday's win, despite the point swing, and why he didn't sleep well. It's because towards the end of that race, his medium rear was going off. Binder was I mean Binder wasn't like closing in, closing in, but Martin's pace dropped and hearing him after the race it wasn't it wasn't just pure management or easing off it was like the tires going so that would have been I think that would have been a substantial concern for for Sunday not just in terms of you know making the tire last but just in terms of what if what if I can't do it without dropping some pace but Peko just blitzes past uh, and I think maybe that informed the way that he ran the first 10 or 12 laps which was 
clearly massive pace management because I think you know you still look at you look at the the life timing on lap six or lap seven and you see like the top whatever 12 15 covered by three four seconds you look at the you look at the shots the tv shots and you see like basically you see the whole field in one in one angle coming into turn three and you when that happens in MotoGP, you know that somebody's somebody's playing games out front and like hitting a, a target in their head but yeah i did it well that's i'm not sure he could have not sure he could have played it better I maybe it would have been good to stretch the field a little bit and make Peko's life fighting through harder, but then probably Peko just fights through anyway, and then at the end of the race you arrive and oops, no tire, and Peko probably still has something because he's Peko. So yeah, I think he's I think he's played this one really well. I think it's a it's a very important big statement win. I don't know if it changes like my perception of either rider. Just you know, it's one race. I. I think we rerun that race a bunch of times and I would not be surprised if Banyaya wins a, a big handful of those times. But it's, it's important after the the two failures of execution that Jorge Martin had in Indonesia and Phillip Island, letting huge points go to waste. This It's not such a big point swing, but it is important to show, okay, this is, this is how we can win this championship. Where you say about perceptions not changing for you, Vel, for me, uh, what I'm loving about this is my perceptions are changing constantly because neither of these two is actually a really finished article in, in ch- you know, Banyar is a lot closer. He's a champion already, but it still feels like he's learning how he can deploy this kind of tactical racing stuff that he's becoming by necessity a bit of a specialist in through qualifying a bit worse. You know, he sometimes, like today, knows exactly when he can just like shove Marquez off the road blast three people other times like in the sprints okay he's not as comfortable on the on the tire there but he's not showing the same level of confidently pushing past someone when he has to backing off when he needs to it it's like you say it's like it's a quite a big saturday sunday difference and i do think yeah you're right that's to do with tire comfort and a bit of the stakes in the sprint you don't want to get hurt in the sprint going into the grand prix next day but it's also i think banyar is figuring himself out as a defending champion and what that what that involves when you've got a rider who is actually on raw pace faster than you right now. And equally, Martin is learning how to control races because he's never had to be in anything like this position in MotoGP before. But how impressive to go from making, I was going to say a terrible job of controlling a race at Phillip Island. It wasn't quite that. The the terrible element of Phillip Island was choosing an impossible tyre in the first place. I think he did very well to control things as well as he did in in that circumstance. Straight ride. It It was just doomed beforehand. But to come from that to Thailand and put on a proper masterclass in controlling a race while looking after your pace, looking after your tyre and getting back in front, like both of these guys are on an amazing learning curve. And I don't I don't feel like any past criticisms we might have had about Banyaya's flakiness or Martin's habit of lobbing a bike into the wall while leading were inaccurate at the time. It's just look at how they're progressing and, and what they're turning into right now is brilliant. I actually, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Matt. I think what we're watching, I, I do think that Bagnaya is the real deal now. I think that he, he basically has all the tools that he needs um, to, to keep this championship streak running a bit longer than just a single year or even just this year as well. Uh, but I think what we're seeing this year is someone learning how to be a sprint race champion as well for the first time. You know, we, we've never been in this situation before where a champion has had to manage double the amount of races in the season and worry about Saturdays and Sundays and, and whatever. And you know, look at the look at the last few rounds where he's kind of struggled on a Friday 
um, and then was out of shape for the sprint race. And he's had to go, you know, start changing how he works through his whole routine for the weekend and be a bit faster on Friday and whatever. I think that that's all that that's not necessarily something that's missing from his toolkit as much as it's something that's missing. Just just it's just like experience that's missing right across the MotoGP grid because no one's ever done it before. Um, you know, it's it's we know from a few things that Peko has said recently. Um, I asked him about this on Thursday. He talked about it on Thursday, but a little bit about how you go into a sprint race different mentally. And and that's something that he's had to learn this year is, you know, how you approach, literally how you approach uh, your preparations for the weekend or for the, sorry, for the, the, the race, knowing it'll be distance different and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, I think Martin is rougher around the edges. He's probably faster. Uh, but I think Peko is, Peko's not far off being the complete racer now. It's just this season um, and all the, you know, weird trials and tribulations of, of, 42 races is is sort of skewing things a bit looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's give some love to the third part of the triangle, the man who uh, wasn't, isn't in the title fight right now. In Val's eyes, would be champion if he was on the Ducati. Probably, I'm sure Val made that case at some point earlier this season. Yeah, he's waving a hand in a way that I would take as a yes. Um, Brad Binder was a key part of the fun in this race and led it for a while. Uh, Val, I'm going to let you go first on this as well as, as a regular Binder advocate. And actually, I generally agree with your points about him. The, the striking thing for all of us in this race, uh, in Binder's race rather, wasn't just that Binder was doing the Binder thing of really strong Sunday, getting involved with some Ducatis up front. Yeah, we, we expect that on a good day. It was how far ahead of the rest of the KTM quartet he was. It, and now it was exacerbated a bit by the fact that Jack Miller and the two Tech 3 Gas Gas riders finished in the very last three places. They were last on a bike he nearly won the race on. I think that's that's semi-false in that some of the other midfield riders, like the Hondas, Franco Mobidelli, had slightly less mediocre races relatively than usual. But still, how like let's look at that absolutely literally. How on earth has Binder nearly winning a race on a bike that is finishing last in other people's hands? Yeah, it's um, it did it did genuinely make me think of of Mark Marquez's 2019 when he was uh, dragging that year's Honda to basically single-handedly winning all three of the available titles rider championship team championship construction championship while the other hondas were jorge lorenzo doing... contributed 21 points to the no, no, team's okay. championship yes. <laughs> yes, out of the, like 400 he contributed 21 <laughs> that's true 
Both both Jorge Lorenzo and Stefan Bradl, I think, were mathematically necessary to the championship, but <laughs> like in terms of like margin of error, necessary. But yes, fair enough. It was just Marquez, then they wouldn't have won that one. But but I mean, come on. <laughs> I know Simon is very mischievously uh, laughing, but yeah, that was it. Was that kind of thing by by Brad Binder today, and basically this weekend, I think. Matt is right in that it is a little deceptive because a lot of it will will stem from Jack Miller being uh, bullied relentlessly in in Q1 by Mark Marquez. And before that, I think he, like in Friday when he was supposed to go to Q2 directly, I think he caught yellow flag. So it took a little bit. But at the same time, he didn't make he didn't make any progress. He wasn't fast. He was he was just basically struggling all around. He his suggestion was that. Uh, Binder was making the difference in sector one and sector two. I've not I've not seen like the data, and it, I'd struggle to compare the exact race situations because obviously they were running in different packs, facing different situations, fighting different bikes. But just looking looking at the sector by sector breakdown of their races, it well, first of all, it's everywhere. It's just everywhere. Uh, there's a there's a more than half second I think gap between. I might be wrong on the on the exact number, but there's a big big gap between the their two fastest laps and just generally, obviously, their race times, and you can see that it basically is a little bit in every sector. I'd say particularly the one that stuck out to me, is sector four, and it's because I remembered uh, Jack Miller's rhetoric from earlier in the season that he wasn't doing so well in some of the changes of direction, like that part in particular wasn't wasn't giving him a bit of trouble, and there's. Uh, in Thailand, there's one in mid-lap, and then there's a couple in the final sector, you know, that 10-11 sequence. And I would not be surprised if that was giving him a lot of a lot of trouble relative to, to Brad, although he didn't he didn't necessarily say so. But it was just, they were, they were basically riding in different races. And the same was true for, you know, for the Tech 3 Gas Gas duo of Paul Spargo and Augusto Fernandez. For Augusto Fernandez, there is the excuse that uh, he went exploring some other track on the opening lap because uh, he had a shake and his brake pads opened up, the familiar KTM story, and he was lost by three seconds. So actually, he recovered decently and I suspect would have finished ahead of not just Paul, but also Miller, but he still would have been ages behind Binda. Um, it's... Uh, Paul Espargo, I think, suggested that the way that the bike has changed relative to what it was at the start of the season, that... Brad has managed to adapt himself a little bit to it and to to just you know to just ride in a different way that maybe isn't entirely available to to his you know his fellow KTM riders right now and particularly Paul who feels he normally rides in a very similar way to to Binder but I mean for me I I don't know there's there are of course technical explanations but like the most obvious explanation is he's just much better right now and that's that's all there is to it that it's not like some sort of specific bike thing necessarily, but it's just one of the one of the current informed best riders in MotoGP doing what he does against the backdrop of an, a pretty untidy weekend for for all of his stablemates. That would be my explanation. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're you're not completely wrong in the Marquez twenty nineteen comparisons, um, and and you know. Paul in particular kind of hinted at that as well, that Brad's doing things on the bike at the minute that no one else can do. Um, I, I think none of them said it out loud this weekend, really. Um, but I think 
the the switch to the harder carcass Michelin might have played a bit of a role as well because all the issues that they seem to be having were on that sort of acceleration and drive out of corners. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, Miller said yeah. that uh, he couldn't pass Yamaha in a straight line because the speed difference, which is pretty damning for KTM's engine development team, but uh, is also you know kind of indicative of, of more acceleration problems than anything top end. Um, so yeah, I think that might have been maybe not the cause of everyone's bad weekends apart from Bender, but it was certainly a, a big contributing factor across the board. Um, Augusto should have been further up the rankings. He, he got unlucky with that pad issue at turn one or in the first lap and, and had to do a lot of work. Paul, I think was maybe even if he didn't say it, I think Paul right now is struggling physically quite a bit. No, he suggested it um, because he, did, he, did he, he hinted at it. Yeah, yeah he did. Yeah. Uh, but you know, he, he doesn't have the cardio of everyone else at the minute because he missed so much of the season and it didn't miss the season. You know, it's not, he was sitting at home doing gym work. He was really badly broken and not able to do anything. So I think he's playing catch up physically. Um, and Miller just, you know, between, between the tire issues, between the way he rides in particular, not suiting that. I think the, the three of them had, I mean, I kind of feel bad saying the three of them had a really terrible day because the, the three of them were like 20 seconds away from Binder. Yeah. It, you know, th- this is the problem with MotoGP right now. Um, I think today, uh, without double checking exactly, I think today is about eighth in the top uh, top 10 closest top 15s ever in terms of the time gap. It was a super, super tight race. Um, and the problem is that if you have any weakness whatsoever in those super tight races, you get punished. And that's what we saw, you know, with their times. Right, well, that's you know conceding. By the time you take lap one out of it and where they are in their grid, they're conceding like half a second a lap. It's it's not a big time margin here that they're dropping, but it's enough to make a, a big difference in terms of finishing order at the minute. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with your explanation, but I w- I would say that for me, half a second here, given the the fact that the gaps were just so compact all weekend, because this is not the the hardest track. On the MotoGP calendar, in, in, in you know, in terms of the technique and the amount of corners and the type of corners, I think half a second is pretty bad. It's it's. I, I think they would not necessarily object with the description of their days being terrible because I, yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate. I think my feeling is that right now for Miller specifically, because I think this is the the reflects maybe the worst on him if that makes any sense and i know that sounds really harsh but you know as uh, no, as factory teammate as the as the big as the big money signing i think for him the problem is that again his game just really seems to rely right now on qualifying pretty well uh, and which which has been very impressive this season how quickly he's been able to get on top of the rc16 over one lap you know that's been the story for all the season and he sort of he does find himself in defensive races, but makes himself enough of a of a nuisance to be able to to salvage good results, even if the race pace isn't always necessarily there. But when you don't have that high grid position, yeah, I, if Brad Binder starts fifteenth, you would. There's no surprise whatsoever when you look at the classification at the end of the race and you see him fourth. Yeah, that's fair. Or whatever. Or, or I mean, he won a sprint from fifteenth, didn't he? So yeah, yeah. For for Jack, that is a surprise. For Jack, when he starts at, in that part of the track, uh, that part of the grid, uh, it usually 
does not bode well for for the race. Well, you just don't actually expect Jack Miller to to move forward in a race regardless of where he qualifies unfortunately and it's just it's setting us too much of a trend now you you when he's near the front you're waiting for him to fall backwards when binder's in the middle of the pack you're waiting for binder to move forwards yeah unless it's a wet race in which case i do usually expect jack miller to (laughs) but yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely uh binder was second on the road ended up third due to a final lap track limits infringement which I find really annoying. I have to say, now, I don't know if I should. I mean, sports have finickety rules. There's whatever, you know, football has VAR and offside rules. There's umpires say things in tennis and cricket. And I'm sure in in rugby, there's something involving mud and big thighs that's a bit like this as well. But uh, to, to me, the potential for this close a title fight to be decided by someone running over a white line on the last lap and getting a position changed like that that sort of this is the that one size fits all punishment for a last lap infringement just sits a bit uneasily with me it it bothered me that's that's really made quite a big point swing difference today by promoting Banyaya to second ahead of Binder I I don't like it I mean I I don't mind it actually um of all the silly rules that we have um 30 years ago, that piece of the track would have been grass. And if Binder had been on the grass with his rear wheel whenever he got the acceleration on and it had been a bit damp, that would have been a massive high side that would have fired him back into the path of Bagnaya in the middle of the road. And there would have been horrendous consequences, potentially. Um, so for me, it is, it's unfortunately, it is a safety rule that I agree with if the alternative is having grass there. Um, I would rather that we designed all race circuits so the track limits weren't an issue because it is at the end of the day, it's it's something to do with the design of the circuits. There's a way that you can design a corner that this doesn't happen. Um, but that we can't retroactively change that at every circuit on the MotoGP and F1 calendars that have been there for however many years. Um, so yeah, I think it, it sucks, but similarly it's um you know it's a safety rule i can't really disagree with it and i think it's also quite notable that you know the only person i think that has been done for it this year in MotoGP is brad bender and he's been done three times now which might hint (laughs) that there's a little bit of operator error involved as well because yeah i mean today was one thing but getting done the second day in a row with assen that was just dumb on his behalf and I, i think if he hadn't been done previously twice this season, people would be a little bit less bothered about it tonight. But you know, the reality is he did. It also it does also like feel when you're watching him follow someone and he's just using a lot more of the of the road always than than his direct rivals. Not in not in the sense that he's like violating the rules somehow, but just that there's a lot of really again, not inaccuracy, but just you know, wider lines unusual lines that kind of thing just maybe because of the riding style maybe also because of what the ktm is i'm i'm basically 100 percent with simon on this one as strange as that might sound yeah. um it's it's it stinks i don't like it it's not enjoyable if that was for the win it'd be i think it would have considerably soured a great race because he just oh yeah a post-race demotion to second place i just I mean, it sucks it obviously sucks but I don't want gravel, gravel there. I don't want grass there. I don't want pebbles there. I don't want razors or whatever there, whatever other lava, whatever people will suggest. I don't want people a pit to full be, of crocodiles. 
Poor crocodiles. <laughs> I don't. I don't want people to get thrown off their bikes. I don't. I don't like that rhetoric of well, a mistake should be punished. And I don't know. You should feel it in your bones. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm glad they're staying on the bikes when they're making mistakes like that. Um, I'm. But you gotta. You have to police it somehow. I understand. Well, you, you can't just make it total free for all because. It does depend on the profile of the coroner, but usually if you make it a total free-for-all, then that just means the the track limit shifts to a, a to a less safe part. That's what it does. And this is, I guess this is the best way to, to sort of balance safety and sporting fairness and, and watchability. And it's not a great way. Maybe there's something better. I don't know. Maybe I... Honestly, it's, 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 it's hard to even like think about a particularly good idea like in video games when you go off track somehow yeah. they just cut your power for a couple of seconds really sticky. I don't yeah know. maybe one day yeah but if you watch the moto 3 race today you see what happens whenever someone has their power suddenly cut while they're on the yeah, racing line yeah, so yeah. we can't do that yeah i don't mean cut power completely but also like that's yeah that's not safe <laughs> you can't have that be particularly safe uh, maybe Binder should have just given given the position back immediately, and maybe that should be pre-agreed as being enough. Maybe because he clearly knew that he he made an oopsie, yeah. and he knew that he can't win the race now. So maybe he should have been incentivized to go behind Banyaya and then try to try to fight back through. But there's only so much you can do. I, I share your frustration completely, Matt. I get it. It's not. Not what any of us yeah. signs up to watch. Obviously, I'm 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 not pro wet grass covered in spikes. There, obviously, I I it's the feeling that this could affect something that really really matters when things are this close that is niggly. But I guess that is like you say that's on the riders to stop doing this. Basically, particularly if they're doing it multiple times a season, like like Bender is. Yeah, there's, unfortunately, there's only so much of that you can avoid. Like there's a, for instance, we we're now you know we now have a real possibility in this MotoGP season, a genuine, genuine possibility where Jorge Martin wins the title on the road in Valencia, then gets a second tire pressure warning, drops back three seconds and loses the title. It is now a much more plausible outcome than it was 24 seconds ago and a infinitely more plausible outcome than it was before the tire pressure rule came in. That would... That would suck. That would suck a lot. I'm again going to uh, avoid expletives here, but yeah, I think you can you can figure out what the rest of that sentence was going to be. Um, but sometimes that's just man, that's just how it is. I don't know. I'm I know it's not ideal, and it's it's not just a MotoGP thing. It's a a lot of places, a lot of motorsport thing. You don't want the podium decided in any way post race, basically, almost or at least. At least you want to immediately know that there's some question mark about it or something. But what can you do sometimes? That, that's one thing I will give uh, everyone involved credit for today. They made that decision really snappily. There, yeah. was, there was no hanging around today yeah, with yeah. it. That was done quickly. Yeah, that's the way it should have been done. Yeah, of course. But also, yeah, but also he... <laughs> that was quite the track limit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there was no yeah, yeah. room for interpretation there, but yeah. <laughs> No grainy CCTV footage required. No. <laughs> like you can... Yeah, he's on the green yeah. bit. Job done. I guess if, if nothing else, this this part of the conversation proves I do have some degree of sporting passion in my soul and it's not just all about <laughs> website traffic because <laughs> I, I, the title being decided with a post-race penalty, that should be really good for website traffic without rage people, but I still... <laughs> 
still do i want to see it maybe i do yeah maybe i do um speaking of unusual lines as we did with binder a moment ago um let's finish our chat about how this race was won by talking about banyaya's mega moment that surged down the outside of not one of his rivals but both of them how how did he get that much momentum could he have would he have pulled it off if martin hadn't just gone you're, you're you're staying out there in in the runoff Potentially, but it, it it would it would have required a lack of awareness of the situation for Martin. I think I, it would have helped that it it looked like looking at the helicopter footage that at that point both Binder and Martin have sort of agreed. Yeah, we're staying first and second through there and deciding this on the final lap because Banya is just so much quicker through than both of them coming out of out of turn eleven from out of the change direction. So maybe it was that again. Uh, He's obviously he's a well-renowned as a fantastic breaker. He really like it was not it was no kind of kamikaze move or anything like that because he was absolutely making the corner. Like, that much is clear. He was doing everything right. He looked to be taking basically an ideal line. And then I suspect I can't see his helmet too well from the from the shots available, but I suspect in the corner of Martin's eye, Martin saw a red blip on the left. Uh, probably got scared for a millisecond very much. Like, what are you doing here? Why? <laughs> rolled out of the, like, released the brake a little bit. Basically rolled through rolled through the corner, ran Banya out of room, got on the power. I think if that was executed slightly less well, that would have won the race for, for Brad Bender. But instead, it, it won the race for Martin, even though it was a completely ruthless... Maybe not the most sporting move, but Banya is certainly in no position to complain after that aforementioned Mark Marquez overtake. And ultimately just a a, a fantastically beautiful move from Banya, but also a great example of situational awareness and playing the championship picture for, for Martin, who maybe in that moment decided, win or second, as long as I finish ahead of you, buddy, it's fine. I, I think there's also an element of just being Jorge Martin. <laughs> I think that there's other people that that move would have worked on because they don't get up in the morning and eat raw meat and then punch a concrete wall for <laughs> a bit of relaxation. You know, Jorge Martin is an animal on this grid. He's one of the few guys left on it who is a proper animal. And um, it wouldn't have worked on him. It wouldn't have worked on Mark Marquez. But against maybe a Fabio Cotteraro or an Alicia Spagaro, that move I think would have stuck. I would be talking about, you know, one of the greatest completed overtakes we've ever seen tonight. Um, but yeah, it, I, I I don't know if it worked on Brad Binder. No, um, no. I don't think so. But certainly it was never going to work on Jorge Martin while he had the ability to uh, defeat it as easily as he did. I have to say, though, like outside line moves in MotoGP have a pretty low percentage chance of actually coming off you really yeah. if you go down the outside you're doing it to force your rival to cut in tight and get them on the exit more often than not to have come that close to making it making it work on not just one rider but two and one of them being your title rival while you're leading the championship with a diminishing lead it's just the do you think he actually meant to do it yes yeah yes i think i think maybe maybe he didn't mean to do it going into the previous corner <laughs> But certainly there was a point halfway around the previous corner where he thought, I'm going to get an amazing exit here. I can do this. Um, and like from that point, it was just pure Jorge Lorenzo-esque. Like that's the only other person that can pull off moves like that around the outside. You know, it was literally his catchphrase for about 10 years, wasn't it? Um, yeah. 
If that had stuck, it would have been beautiful. <laughs> Speaking of Lorenzo, though, just that one thing that really interested me, like you, you've both kind of hinted that Bagnaia couldn't really complain about this because of how he'd raced Marquez earlier in the race. Well, he didn't complain, did he? He actually said, I'd have done, I'd have done the same. He was, he was fine about Martin running yeah, it yeah. wide there. Now, thinking back to the kind of what we'd think of as the good old days of the big personality rivals, I feel like any of them would have absolutely denied they'd have raced the other one that way and claimed it was hideously unfair <laughs> while knowing, absolutely knowing, that they would do exactly the same, knowing that they were lying, but just doing it for the headline and for the psychology anyway. And oh, a bit more sporting passion and humanity for me again. I was going to say, I think I like this way better, even though the old way was rather good, again, for, for website traffic, because you just throw something out there, let them ar- let the reads argue over it. But th- these these guys are a bit more human. You want you want the riders that you're following and you're invested in the outcome of their title fight and their you know in their success or failure you're invested in their stories. You want them to have an ounce of self awareness that they project to the outside world. I think that's very very important. <laughs> I do prefer this. Yeah, yeah. Um, for, for what it's worth, you know, Pekka Banyaya definitely in our comment section, and I just imagine also on social media got a fair bit of flack for his uh, Saturday comments. Uh, in which he lamented being stuck behind a useless battle between Johan Darko and uh, Alex Marquez, which maybe it was it was maybe not the best choice of words, but I feel like it was a little bit misinterpreted as Banyaya wanting to just you know for the carpet to be unfurled in in, in front of him and for him to be let go, which I I just I don't think that's what he meant. I think what he meant is just pace yourselves and maximize your own races instead of doing this but without really putting himself in their shoes or particularly caring about their particular sets of incentives because he was probably always going to clear them. And in fact, they they fought so much that they made it absurdly easy at the end of the day for him. But for them, that was the race. That battle was the race. Whereas for him, the race because of his pace was further ahead. So his his thinking is maximizing the race time. So I, I think some people saw it as... Banyaya asking for for team orders. He doesn't. He doesn't do that. That's not that's not him. He's just he just sometimes maybe doesn't always put himself in the shoes of his rivals sometimes and maybe sometimes says things that come across a little bit I'd say egotistic or not so well thought out. But I again I I'm, I do not want to judge him for that in, in any way, shape, or form, because first of all, not first language, which is very important. I think easy to forget. And second of all, it's like it's 30 minutes after the race. You might, yeah, you might say something without really phrasing it the best. I think he had a, he had a point that he was making that made sense to me. It's not maybe, not one that Zarko or Alex Marquez should have particularly listened to, but, you know, a point. I can see why he felt that way on the bike. I imagine it was super, super frustrating to see them rough each other up in front of him while Martin and the rest of the pack checks out out front. I mean, obviously that's going to annoy anybody. But yeah, I think the reason I'm, it's easy for me to give him the benefit of the doubt on any of that kind of thing is I know Peko Banyaya is a, is a, you know, is a genuine bloke who doesn't seek to find grievances out of nowhere. If he has a grievance, usually sometimes he'll, I think, conceal it. Sometimes he'll air it pretty fairly, but he doesn't, no, it doesn't seem to like play to the crowd much or do the pressure chat or whatever, do much of mind games. Is is you know, his whole attitude seems to be like we're all colleagues here. This is all our gig. I 
I just, you know, whether I beat you or not depends on what I what I do out there on the track on Sunday, where more often than not, I'm the smartest guy out there. And that like that for me is enough. I don't need to to play some sort of mental mental game with you. That's that's how I feel. I'm fine with that. I think I think mind games are massively overrated. I think if you're, if you're going to have a public spat, have it about something actually legitimate. Like, if you're going to voice a grievance, it has to be legitimate grievance. I do not watch the WWE. I'm sorry. I do not tune in for poorly scripted sporting drama between people who don't actually believe it. If you, <laughs> if you are at odds, it better be real. Otherwise, I don't know for whose benefit you're doing this. I... If I wanted if I wanted big rivalries and familial drama or whatever, then there's Netflix and HBO and whatever, and I can always tune in. Very good Hollywood writers. Just drive to survive. Yeah. No, no, not that. Anything but that. But lots of other very good options with good scripting and you know people who actually paid to write dialogue. Let's leave that for this and let's have the sporting contest be legitimate and real and the emotions that are being felt and conveyed also being legitimate and real and always keep that in mind. That was a... Wow, I've really... Wow, that yeah. was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I really went somewhere. There. Simon, follow that. To compress everything that Val has said into one very brief paragraph, it's, it's that at least Valentino Rossi really, really hated Mark Marquez. <laughs> 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 there was no play actor there. He despised him. So at least there's that. Um, yeah, I disagree slightly in that I think that MotoGP is missing a bit of a, a wrestling heel at the minute, uh, like Jorge Lorenzo used to be. That was kind of the 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 draw of people's focus and their anger a little bit. And and actually, part of the reason why I say that is because I think he really enjoyed it. And in the absence of, of him being there for that role, um, all of that hate and negativity, of which there is always going to be some, tends to get like, just fired, scattergun at random people. You know, you hear people moaning about Aleish, complaining about safety issues, and you think, are you, you know, what? It, it, you know, it would do no harm to have a lightning rod for a bit of the... Uh, higher emotions that float around in MotoGP every now and then, if you have someone who's willing to be the lightning rod. Um, but we don't at the minute, although Pedro Costa is kind of auditioning for the role a little bit, which is going to be quite interesting in a few years' time. Yeah, we'll definitely chat about Acosta a bit more in the coming weeks because his Moto2 title is very much on the cusp now. Um, I agree. I think Lorenzo took absolute great delight in a lot of the pantomime villain stuff. I kind of don't mind that a bit more, actually. Fernando Alonso, in, in his Formula 1 heyday, I think, used to play the role very knowingly as well. And when they're actually being the villain and you can tell they're sort of half-winking at you, I prefer that to when they're doing it with a completely straight face and denying that their nonsense opinion is just made up to try and score a score a point over a rival in their head or get some headlines or whatever. I should, I should, I should just say, I, I, I don't feel great about the WWE thing that I said. If you, if you watch that and enjoy that, obviously... No, no beef there. I don't know. It's just what it just what came to mind. I love just... how professional motorsports journalist is now defending his opinions on on WWE, but he still hates Drive to Survive. Screw that. No, but it feels like, <laughs> not telling that back at all. It feels like it feels like the kind of thing that's just gonna you know, there's a listener or two who's like, but I really, why did he just go out of his way to to crap on something that I enjoy? Which I, it's never a nice feeling when a, when a podcast host or whatever does that. <laughs> so I, I felt it was my duty to, to so, so what, what I'm, correct myself. What I'm a sort of 
extrapolating from this is that you don't believe that any of our listeners actually watch Drive to Survive, so you can say what you want to put it. <laughs> no, that one's personal, man. That one's... <laughs> <laughs> we'll always have MotoGP Unlimited. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Right, we touched on Mark Marquez a few times in this episode. Let's have Mark Marquez corner. He he had a pretty good weekend performance-wise, and he also did a really, really, really Mark Marquez thing in qualifying where he basically... We, we, we know Mark Marquez likes towing behind other riders, but the reasons he now does it seem to be being a bit more stretched, and his absolute hounding of Jack Miller in Q1 on Saturday raised raised quite a few hackles. Val, your hand shot up about this. What was going on with Marquez in qualifying, and can he just stop it now? Well, firstly, my... my... My hand shot up because he said he had a pretty good qualifying, I, or a pretty good weekend. I'd say he had a fantastic weekend. I think he did an amazing job. Yeah. I think one of one of his best of the season, also points wise. It's not been a great season, yeah. but you know, <laughs> the I think benchmark's quite low there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I honestly, I thought he was he was super effective in both races. Uh, I, was, I was massively impressed by by the job he did, and it's 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 very obvious to me that he hasn't in any way, shape, or form checked out on his on his Honda duty that you know he's taking it clearly very seriously and he just probably just can't help himself when he's in there for a weekend he, he cannot help himself to try to get the absolute best possible result or crash out while doing it um look i didn't like the towing and i i can't i can't see how anybody particularly would it just kind of sucks to watch it's not fun um and i just to explain the situation a little bit, you know, it always goes on in, in I think, in Q1 particularly. It always is quite the, quite the watch. It basically always looks like the worst Moto3 sessions or whatever. And in this case, Mark clearly wasn't the only offender, but he was very blatantly waiting around for, for Jack Miller and following him in every every possible way on that second round of, of, of Q1. And he did a good lap in, in Miller's toe. And then the next lap, which was the final lap, he got a good run out of, I think out of turn turn one, I think through turn two, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he got a good run and he went for the overtake. And basically he overtook a, a direct rival for passage for Q2 on that lap. I, I'm not even like particularly interested in, in discussing whether that was a, sort of a move that was also intended to hamper Miller a bit or whether that was just Marquez seeing this as his quickest way to complete a decent lap because I think both arguments could be made but also given that Miller just towed him to a good lap time I think he deserved the professional courtesy of being able to spend the next lap in relative clean air at least and instead he he got a bit compromised um my my beef when it comes to this is not with Mark because Matt, you say his 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 reasoning for you say his reasoning for this is becoming more stretched. Can you can you explain a little bit what what, what you meant by that? I think 
it's to do with that extra overtaking move particularly. I understand the idea of wanting to follow a rider on a more competitive bike, benefit from their slipstream, benefit from following their lines. I get that, absolutely. It just, for me, what happened in qualifying felt like it was getting into, I'm not just going to benefit from following you, I'm going to disrupt you as well. And that's that's where it crosses the line for me, where it feels, and we d- we discussed a little bit whether he, it was the two Marquez brothers that went through from Q1 to Q2. We we speculated in our, in our chat on Saturday whether this was Mark trying to do Alex a favour by getting in the way of people who might threaten his brother's passage, as it was, I think Alex was quickest, wasn't he? And, and yes. Mark, yes, Mark was. who was in jeopardy. But yeah, it's when it almost looks like spiteful is maybe too strong but it's like yeah okay get the toe but just don't do the rest of it i think it's, it's kind of the, yeah the best. but yeah you're you're right yes but uh sort of the rest of it at a certain point the rest of it is just sort of comes with the territory when the rider that you've picked to follow tries to fight it really hard like yeah the overtake was a bit bad but so was the so was the aggressive hunting the laps before it didn't look particularly good and in terms of again in in every case the problem is that there is a you know by rules it's legitimate and there's a legitimate competitive competitive reason for it you cannot really punish mark marquez for doing the overtake because he has the very easy defense of this was the quickest way to do my lap and i was quick enough to overtake him because miller was also pushing so so here you go um my my problem with the situation and why i think it would be cool for MotoGP to to step in, but potentially MotoGP slash the FIM are just hoping that once Mark is on a Ducati and none of this matters anymore, which I think is probably accurate, even though there are other people towing. But the problem is that Mark is the one guy who's towing, but always represents, like, you know when he's towing, you know that he's a real threat to go to Q2 or to put it very high in the grid. Like you, The other riders can be a threat, but usually not so worrying. I think most riders will back themselves to even in clean air, see them off. But with Mark, you're, you can't. He'll, he'll match your lap time and usually beat it. So that's the problem. I, for me, the big issue this year, and specifically it was very obvious, it felt, in Thailand, is because of how his season has played out and like everything with you know, all the coverage, all the everything, we know a priori that to him it just doesn't matter if he qualifies 19th, 20th, whatever. doesn't matter. It only matters whether he can get into into Q2 or not. And he is able to parlay that into a situation where, buddy, I'm going to follow you. You have to do a lap. If you're going to play around, if you're going to park it on the side of the track until the checkered flag, fine. I'll stay with you. Yeah, for 19th and 20th, fine. I have nothing to lose. I'm just I'm just salvaging what I can from this season. I'm, you know, I'm doing the, the best I can every weekend. But, buddy, my, if I'm 20th because of this, I'm 20th anyway. The bike doesn't work. So it's that sort of situation where he cannot lose. He has nothing to lose. And all of the people he follows do have something to lose. Jack Miller basically, look, let's, let's be honest, his whole weekend was ruined because of this. Gone. In, down the trash. Um, and this is not the first time this has happened. I remember a case with Maverick Vinales, I think, not that long ago. It just, it, it happens. Um, yeah, so that's that's the imbalance I sort of don't like. It's peak game theory, and my, my issue isn't with Mark, because Mark comes to the weekend, is paid millions and millions and millions to get the best possible result he can for Honda. That's what he does. And he's brilliantly effective for it, and he, he knows that a weekend of him just 
cruising around and hitting the, the bike's lap times isn't worth anything. But if you can stuck it high up on the grid and then try to try to make some noise there, that's you know that's more worthwhile, both for himself and probably for Honda really. But it's just that imbalance in terms of the incentives is what I really, I think why it would be good for MotoGP to try to legislate this whole thing away. That's that's what I think because you get the set of incentives you get. I do not like. It's not it's not fair. I think it's not fair. I mean, I'm completely team Matt here. The issue for me is not the uh, it's not the tone because whatever you're writing for the big orange mess, um, there's not much else you can do at the minute to get a lap time. So that you know is part of the game. But I I can't help but think that he knew exactly what he was doing after the checkered flag or after the lap was completed. Sorry, and and he set out to make sure Miller wasn't going to go quicker than him. And and that for me, that's the point where it goes from from a part of the sport to unsporting uh and i think he knows that i think that he doesn't care because you know, he has said himself that on the bike i am a bastard he knows you know, that's all part of it and it's not illegal so no one's going to do anything about it but yeah it's it's not really nice to see um next year it shouldn't happen because he's going to be an educator that has qualified on pole literally every round apart from two this season one of which went to mark marquez in a honda um he's going to be right back into pole position you know territory next year i'd be surprised uh if he spends much time in q1 full stop next year and it's harder to do in q2 but yeah it still won't surprise me to see him sabotage the odd person now and then because he knows that it works mentally he knows that it, it upsets his rivals it distracts them yeah, I'd have more respect for it, actually, if he was doing it in a title fight with a title rival, but doing it at a point where it doesn't matter to him that yeah. he's just going to screw someone else's day. It's just like, yeah, come on, you're, you're better than this. Um, in terms of his big scores, I should just say he he is now at a point where it's not unthinkable he'll get in the top 10 in the championship. I don't think Marquez will care about that in the slightest. I, I would really like to see him do it because I think in his best moments, the quality of his riding has been amazing again this year, and it, it offends me for Marquez to be, well, not in the title fight, really. It certainly offends me for me to hit for him to be that far down and um, one other piece of business and we'll discuss quickly Aprilia had a weekend another weekend where there were lots of times when it looked like it should be in the mix for uh, victory or, or something close to it um, but it ended up getting the first penalty for a tire pressure infringement and um, having some problems that's riders drastically overheating as well Simon tell us about Aprilia's strange again weekend uh, I'll tackle the second one first um, there is something fundamentally wrong with the design of their bike in that it seems that uh, on a hot day the bike traps hot air uh, between the rider and the screen and you know uh, we saw Maverick Vinales pull into the pits um, because he wasn't able to continue we saw Raul Fernandez admit that he was about to do the same thing and then we heard some very strong words from Alicia Spagaro about what he was suffering as well um it's, it's a bit of a weird one because the problem isn't actually that the bike overheats the riders or burns the riders we saw we used to see the Aprilia do in the past you know I remember watching like Scott Redding get off the Aprilia and have to hose down parts of his body because they were blistering from from the heat of the bike on like his ankles and his wrists but it seems like what it's doing now is it, it's trapping hot air and it means that whenever they breathe in, they get a mouthful of like 70 degrees superheated dry air that makes it basically impossible to physically, um, you know, to do physical activity. 
Um, it, it's burning them from the inside out now, which sounds absolutely dire. It sounds horrific. Um, it's something that, that is going to have to be fixed, you would imagine, by some sort of a fairing redesign back in the Wally. Um, it's it's a very engineering problem where the people that build the bike have never actually had to sit on it, so have never really thought too much about rider comfort, and then suddenly here we are. Um, but you know, it's an issue that I remember. I remember Ducati having a very similar issue, uh, like twenty ten, like Stoner era. Ducati had issues with this, and if you remember, there used to always be pictures back in the day before they cared too much about aerodynamics, about uh, Desmond Sidichis with with whole like big sections of the fairings with holes drilled in them, and it was because of the same issue. So yeah, it's something that obviously isn't a new problem because the the. 2023 or the 2022 hnf bikes are suffering from it as well but it's it's one that you know you would imagine they're going to try and find some sort of a crash solution for this weekend for next weekend in malaysia but it's certainly something that they're going to have to work on hard uh over the winter to make sure it doesn't happen next season uh then on tire pressures um yeah so we've been waiting for the first penalty to be handed out for uh, for basically running too low a tyre pressure for a while after uh, we were initially told the first offence would get a warning and we get a, a whole slew of warnings uh, over the course of the last few races. Uh, we came into this weekend knowing that someone would fall afoul of this and a few guys did, but the only one of them to have already got a warning was the Lacious Bagaro. And it handed him a, a three-second post-race penalty that I think took him from fifth to eighth off the top of my head without looking at the standings. Um, the the yeah, I mean, it's the gamble you play in a day like this. He didn't know what sort of race he was going to have. He had to try and decide beforehand, and he guessed wrong. Um, and as a result, he started with too low a pressure. It didn't come up enough for more than fifty percent of the race. And here we are. The uh, yeah. My, my favourite thing about Alesh getting the penalty was that it arrived, the notification of the penalty arrived literally while we were just wrapping up Mark Marquez's media debrief. And I was the one that told Marquez that he'd suddenly moved up a place. And he was initially quite pleased that he'd moved forward a place until he realised that it then meant after the like epic battle that the two of them had had on the track that he'd beaten Alesha's Bagaro. And he did a happy dance. He literally did a dance in the media centre. He was so happy that he'd won the duel between the two of them uh, more than the actual position. Uh, yeah, so, so Aleish was is the first one to do, get the two warnings. We also had we also had warnings for Mark. We had a warning for Aleish's brother, Paul. And we had a warning for race winner Jorge Martin, which might be... I don't know, we've, we've brought this up earlier in the episode, but it, it might be a really big deal. Just looking at Aleish's race, I understand how it happened because he did spend a substantial amount of it in what you would describe as relative clean air so had that early battle with mark and then he sort of he led a mini pack for so much of it at a certain point he got overtaken by marco bezecchi but bezecchi was just immediately gone up the road so he didn't really get to spend a lot of time in bezecchi's wake uh, at a certain point luca marini drove back towards him but again didn't spend enough time behind him to have the the front tire pressure go up and above the limit so he actually arguably needed more laps being uncomfortable behind another bike but instead he sort of he rode a clean airish race and who else rode a clean airish race I mean, jorge martin 
Jorge Martin led very, very many laps out of the front. And that's that's how he prefers to win races. So for me, that has to be a bit of a bit of a concern <laughs> going forward. And uh, it's it's you know it's a complicated situation because it, it it's always you know a guessing game going into a race. It's it forces MotoGP riders and their crew chiefs to basically estimate what kind of race they're going to have, whether they're going to run in in traffic or whether they're going to run. Uh, in clean air, because if you're in clean air, obviously you go pretty pretty high with the pressure to ensure that you're compliant. But if you're if you're in traffic, then you go low and you just rely on the traffic to make you compliant. So as simple as. Um, but I think Martin will be hoping that, like all the remaining Grand Prix, basically that he's in clean air, clean air, clean air, which means that they're going to have to do better at this because a three second penalty, literally, legitimately, can be championship deciding. 100%. That's, that's how MotoGP is right now. And, yeah. And after a three-second three penalty, it's a six-second penalty, and it's a 12-second penalty. It's not good. And next... Well, I don't know if next year, but they said at some point that they want this infringement to, like, become a disqualification, basically, an instant disqualification. I have... I don't really... I don't understand how this is going to work or is supposed to work. It's just... It's it's maybe one of the weirder, uh, like, rules, not just MotoGP rules, but motorsport rules, because it's like you need to hit it for a certain amount of laps and in the sprint it's like 30 percent which is it's not a lot of laps man it's it's not a lot of laps at all and you get away with it the first time this season but then next year immediately it's it throws out your weekend i don't know i i look i i don't expect it to to be instant disqualification next year i'm really interested to see how they're going to to adjust the the rule sliding scale for this and man, I hope next year isn't dominated by a bunch of post-race penalties for tire pressure. That'd be very irritating, I think. Um, Jorge Martin has essentially played as Joker, and Paco Bagnaia hasn't. And I would imagine that if we see another race like today's at any point in the next three races, and Paco Bagnaia is in a position where he's behind Martin, and even if he knows he's faster than him, he's going to sit behind him. Because this is an error that you can force. Uh, this is something that you can kind of, a position you can put your rival into if you have the pace. And why wouldn't you? Um, this, it really could have the potential to decide a championship if Bagnaya is in a position to play it correctly. Just regarding, just going back to our earlier track limits chat for a second, it looks like in the final race of the World Superbike season, exactly the scenario we're talking about happened, which is the the win was decided by a last lap touch of the green, and everyone is super mad, super mad, very annoyed. So yeah, let's hope let's hope that's not in our Valencia future. Let's put it that way. So I was right, basically, is what you're saying there. Let's end. Let's actually speak of me being right as well. Let's end with, which I'm not often, I have to admit. Let's end with Larry predictions again. We've been doing this for a few weeks as the title battle swung. To, we've been predicting what the gap will be after the next race. Now, uh, after the after the Thai Grand Prix, Banyaya's points lead is 13 over Jorge Martin. At the end of our last episode, Simon predicted that Banyaya would be 34 ahead. Val predicted that Banyard be 19 ahead. I predicted he'd be 12 ahead. So I was within one, which I'm considering I've completely pulled that out of the air just to be a bit more aggressive in my prediction than Val. I think it's a victory for randomness. So let's finish off with today's Larry prediction. Simon, you go first. Who will be ahead in the championship after the next race in Sepang in a fortnight's time? And by how much? Uh, Bagnaya by 18. 
Okay, Val. Manier by three. I'm going to go Martin by two. So we have a two week. How do you break. how do you come to that mathematically? Oh, Show me the building blocks of don't, the, this. Don't, is no place for maths. No. <laughs> exactly. I, I very specifically and deliberately chose that number. I will have you know. This is no place for maths. I just figure sprint race something something. This will be possible. That combination of deficit change is possible now. Something like that. I don't know. It's good. I won this week, so I can't be I can't be that daft. You won this week, so you get to set the rules. I present the podcast. And if the rules involve the suspension of logic and mathematics, that's fine. Absolutely. I'm cool with it. Val's Absolutely. Not, I'm cool with yeah. it. Don't worry. I, I'm, yeah. fine. I'm fine with Whatever. that. Anyway, MotoGP takes a two-week break. We'll be back during that break because we have an awful lot of topics that we want to get into before the triple header across Malaysia, Qatar, and Valencia that is going to decide this truly brilliant championship. Thank you for your patience with us over this long and sometimes meandering and... Um, farcical episode we'll speak to you again very soon the athletic